This lecture is drawn from my dissertation, which is a history of homeschooling since 1950. And uh, I'm going to try to take you through every decade since then. So it's a little bit of a uh, um, big bite I've bit off here. So I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, your handouts should hopefully help. Um, now, this may not be a question that even arises to you all. I know there are a lot of homeschoolers and homeschooling parents in the Christendom community, but everyone else I talk to about homeschooling asks me why I bother studying it. <laughs> um, so I want to start by talking a little bit about that. Uh, there are a few reasons to think about homeschooling and think about why it's important to study historically. Uh, first of all is its growth. And as many of you uh, must know, 60 year ago, years ago there wasn't a word for it. Um, and now, of course, we have uh, a couple of million homeschoolers in the United States alone. So it's grown from about 10 or 15,000 in around 1980 to 2 million in 2010, or 4% of American school children. Still sounds like a small amount. Think of it this way. Every first grade classroom in the United States is missing a student because of homeschooling. The rapidity of this growth is also very important. It's been most rapid in the last 10 years, um, but that's partly because this is something that people did not predict would have grown. So when we're thinking about it historically, it's important to go back a little farther and figure out what are the foundations of this movement? How are they connected to other movements and other trends in American history? Uh, because this rapid growth is based on such surprising success in building the foundations of homeschooling in the 1970s and 80s, and especially the 1990s. Third, homeschooling is a movement that has moved from the very fringes of society to a sort of cautious entrance into the mainstream. A little bit of tolerance, a little bit of acceptance, not everyone's gung-ho homeschooling, but it's no longer something that's so completely weird. Almost everyone knows a homeschooler. Homeschoolers don't have to hide out in the back of their vans when it's one o'clock and they're at the grocery store. Um, <laughs> so that's also a reason it hasn't been much studied, is because it has been considered a fringe element, but as we can see, it has become more of the mainstream, so the time to study it is, is really here. Uh, fourth, Homeschooling is something that is more diverse than most people commonly think. We tend to think of homeschoolers as conservative Protestants, evangelicals. That's true, the majority of the movement is conservative Christian and particularly conservative Protestant, about 80 or 90%. But I don't think that people are generally aware of that other 10 or 20%. And it's that combination of the 80% of conservative Protestants and the 10% of other kinds of Americans that is really interesting to me. And some people have chosen to study this and think about the differences. What are the differences and the, the chasms between homeschoolers? In what ways are they torn apart? But what I'm interested in is, why are these people who are so radically different choosing the same path? Because even if you have someone who's a radical unschooler on the left and you know a Charlotte Mason kind of classical books type on the right, they've both chosen to step away from normative school systems. And that's a very interesting um, movement. Finally, I think that homeschooling is worth studying because it's something very peculiar to America. I don't want to sound like I'm talking like an American exceptionalist, um, but the fact is that homeschooling really has only thrived in this country because of our particular way of dealing with American education, because American education has not historically been nationalized as it is in so many Western countries. So uh, not only has it been able to thrive here, but it's really related to this country's own political and social path in the last century in a way that it hasn't been to any other countries. 
All this is to say that it bears numerous varied and revelatory ties to trends in American life outside of homeschooling itself. So the question I'd like to address here is, what does this exponential growth in numbers, acceptance, and access in homeschooling across religious and political lines suggest about general American attitudes towards the state of education over the decades? I argue that it has much to say about this. In fact, enough to write a dissertation about it. <laughs> I would suggest that the history of homeschooling highlights an increasing loss of public confidence in institutions, a loss that occurred over time as local communities and parents lost most of their ability to influence the institutions, especially schools, upon which the public good and private good of families and children both relied. Homeschooling thrived in the United States, not just because homeschoolers avoided schools, however, but because they addressed the tension between family rights and the public good uh, by creating ways to provide a responsible education, one that the public would eventually be able to recognize and eventually partially accept under parental rather than institutional control. Uh, as we move through the decades here, I'm going to talk about the five steps that homeschooling followed in this process towards what I would like to call post-institutionalism, a way of uh, living with education beyond categories and beyond institutions. Uh, first, homeschoolers found that ordinary means were no longer satisfactory for influencing institutions in their lives, namely schools. So they found that the old ways were no longer working. Second, they decided to withdraw from those old institutions and from those old ways, developing a willingness to operate outside of even the law. And at this time, they became anti-institutional. Third, they began to build connections and organize in order to sustain themselves. Still anti-institutional, but not exactly anti-organization. And at this point, the question arose, well, what's going to happen to homeschooling? Is it going to become another institution? Fourth, instead of just drawing from institutions, or instead, instead of becoming institutional itself, homeschooling began to draw from institutions and on institutions, building rival systems, but neither embracing nor rejecting schools outright. In other words, coming to a tailor-made post-institutional approach to education. Finally, I'll talk about how this approach came to a certain level of acceptance in America, both socially and legally. I should say here, too, that because this is such an enormous topic, even though homeschooling is only 4% of school children, um, that my dissertation actually focuses on a case study of Los Angeles County in Southern California. So I'm going to be talking uh, broadly about California here and um, drawing from sources that especially deal with the southern part of the state. So, 1950, the stage is set. I want to talk a little bit about what education in America was like in 1950, what it was like going to school, and what the problems were that would later lead people to decide to abandon schools for homeschooling. Uh, I want to quickly say, too, that I know that um, it's very popular to talk about homeschooling with a very long history. You know, people like to talk about George Washington as a homeschooler and things like that, and there's something to that. But the homeschooling that I'm talking about that really started in about 1950, I believe is defined as a movement in defiance of normal schooling. Whereas George Washington or your average pioneer boy who didn't have a school around, who learned from the Bible and from his mother, they were not acting in defiance of what the norm was. This was sort of ordinary American life. This homeschooling is really defined as doing something other 
from what um, the ordinary is. This matter of difference has been enormously important in shaping recent homeschooling as distinct from that age-old practice of learning academic and, of course, many, many other things at home. In 1950, after the Second World War, which was a moment of real unity for the United States, things began to fall apart. Uh, Americans expected to be free from fear, as the Norman Rockwell painting says, um, but instead the Cold War began. Now I'm simplifying, of course, but uh, the Cold War created a certain tension in American life that was really pervasive. And, uh, the federal government especially responded to this tension with a nervousness that American research and American uh, production would not be able to keep up with the Soviet Union in the years to come. What this meant for education was that the federal government got very concerned that little Joe Schmo, who was growing up in Pasadena, California in 1952, uh, was not going to learn his times tables and because of that uh, the Soviets were going to blow us up. Um, and they really were concerned to this degree about local education. So there were a number of, number of movements at the federal level to start to influence especially higher education, but gradually also high schools and even lower curricula. And this was uh, the peak of sort of the peak acceleration of nationalization of education in the United States. Now the handing over of education from sort of the ordinary one-room schoolhouse to the experts had begun earlier in the progressive area at the turn of the century. However, it was really this Cold War impetus and Sputnik and all of these things that I'm sure you're familiar with that um, really lit the fire. Uh, the National Education Association, which is the major teachers union, was founded uh, in this era and schools were really becoming increasingly the province of experts. Um, teachers were going to teachers' colleges that were receiving federal funding and were receiving um, uh, information from the federal government about what they should teach. Superintendents were no longer local. They were being flown in from other places. So basically, the actual education in the community school was starting to step a little farther away from the PTA and a little closer to the state house. Um, now, I want to talk about something that happened in the little town of Pasadena in California. Uh, from about 1948 to 1951. And this is something called the Pasadena Controversy. It was a nationally known event. Uh, it was in newspapers all over the country. It was even mentioned on the congressional floor by uh, representatives not from California at all. Pasadena, which was a town of just over 100,000 people, was widely known in the country for its excellent school system. The NEA even touted it as a model school system, an exemplary school system. And everyone had its eye on this little place. Uh, it was a fairly typical town in the Southwest uh, in the post-war boom. Uh, there were thousands of people moving into this area, GIs, um, also just people looking for work. Uh, the military industrial complex was growing very large in Southern California. So you had an influx of people, often people who were not white, um, and a growth of suburbia, growth uh, into these rural areas that used to be sort of an orange orchard paradise for the middle class people who lived there. Pasadena at the time was 10% non-white according to the census. However, uh, because of the way that um, race, racial differences were counted at this time, that doesn't include people of Latino descent. And there's actually no number for that. There's no way of figuring out how many people were um, what we would now consider racial minorities because Latinos at the time were campaigning to be considered Caucasian. 
so it really was a much more diverse city than uh, you would hear in that way. And even though, as I said, they were campaigning to be seen as Caucasian, most of the Latinos in the town of Pasadena were um, migrant workers who were picking oranges and working uh, for the oil men. So they were not upper class. They were not part of the upper crust. Now, the previous superintendent in Pasadena was a man named John Sexton, who was extremely popular. He had some progressive ideas about education that had been very well implemented. Everyone loved him, but then he had a car accident. And then he didn't raise the teacher's pay, so he was out. Um, so in 1948, Sexton was gone, uh, very gracefully retired. And uh, the PTA and the school board of Pasadena, which was largely run by sort of middle class, upper middle class white people with a very strong sense of their leadership in education and their civic leadership did a national search for a superintendent. They actually flew all their candidates to Atlantic City and flew there, them, uh, there themselves in order to uh, interview these candidates. And they hired a shining star named Willard Goslin. This all does have to do with homeschooling. Just hang with me. Um, he was the former superintendent of schools of Minneapolis. He was also the president of the largest organization of school administrators in the country. He's a pro progressive educator, and he was very, very well known. Now, Goslin asked in his interview if the people of Pasadena were ready to be progressive leaders in education. And the school board said, sure. <laughs> Uh, when Goslin came to Pasadena, they discovered that they didn't mean quite the same thing. Uh, Goslin started off on the wrong foot. He did a number of things uh, that were ill-advised. Uh, he fired some people. He hired other people. He had some summer teacher workshops where he brought in progressive social reconstructionist uh, educators like William Hurd Kilpatrick and Theodore Bramald. Um, and finally, he changed the zoning plan so that the schools would suddenly become integrated uh, racially. Previously, people had been able to choose which school to go to, and because of that, things had been de facto segregated. Um, but the main problem with Goslin was that he wouldn't talk to Pasadenans. Now, Pasadena was sort of a cultural mecca in this area, just outside of Los Angeles. You know, it had an opera. It had gardens. It had the California Institute of Technology. And Pasadenans were used to being leaders, and they were used to being consulted. But Goslin would not meet with any individual. He would not speak individually with the members of the school board. He would not speak with the press individually. So what basically happened was this man brought in these radical ideas, which in and of themselves I do not wish to pass judgment on, and many of them were very, very good ideas. Um, but he would not play the Pasadena game. He would not play the game of socializing. He wouldn't go to lunch. He, wouldn't, he didn't do lunch. Um, and so Pasadenans felt that they had no influence over their schools. Whereas before, you could always go talk to someone. You could talk to a school board member. They could get something done. You had some power on the PTA. Um, one of the richer men in the city could talk to the superintendent. Now, I'm not saying that the orchard workers had any effect in this way. But the white middle class and upper class Pasadenans did. And when this changed, it was a real shock to the system. It seemed to them, quote, a full-scale invasion. They were worried that Gosden would not educate but would indoctrinate. Their students would not learn fundamentals. They would learn all sorts of crazy things in sex ed. They accused Goslin and supporters of being communists and anti-American. 
especially the women of this city, began to create grassroots groups and began to protest and hold meetings and write letters and picket. And they had coffee parties, which ended up really making a lot of trouble in the city. Um, which is connected to how, over the next few years, these same women would uh, be the backbone of the beginnings of the new right that would eventually um, lead to the election of Reagan. Um, eventually, Gosling got fired. There was an investigation. The NEA came to, to Pasadena, whole hoopla, but Gosling got fired. Now, as for outsiders' reactions, this was a very widely uh, watched event. And in a Saturday Evening Post editorial in July of 1951, after everything had called down, a man named Frank Chodorov wrote that the issue at hand was not so much who won this fight, because of course these conservative Pasadenans had won this fight, but, quote, the fundamental moral and social question that this butting of heads publicly aroused. And this question was, in his opinion, the question of whose fundamental right it is to form a child, the parents or the states. According to him, Pasadena conservatives caught that, thought that progressivism, quote, very definitely holds that the individualistic relationship between parent and child terminates when the latter enters the public school. So you see the force of this cutting off of communication between the parents and the people who influence the school. And this fear that not only would they not be able to influence the school, but they would not be able to influence their children as long as they were attending this school. It was a disagreement over who should control things. Uh, progressives, too, were often dissatisfied. Of course, they were dissatisfied with the firing of Goslin. But many of them would eventually turn to the same solution as conservatives did, even though they embraced opposite pedagogies for the same reason, difficulty influencing the schools. The problem for families of both sides was that they could no longer wield significant influence over their own children's schooling in the same way as they had before. Moving on to the next couple of decades, I want to use uh, this next period when homeschooling was still very rare and almost universally opposed to talk about the legal situation that early homeschoolers found themselves in when they reacted to this change in control over education by removing themselves from schools. And one result of the changes in control in the post-war era was a sense that the old ways were not working, as I had mentioned. That is, both conservatives and liberals learned the lesson, in the 1960s especially, that independent or grassroots movements had enormous power, as did upper-level individuals. But normal individuals had less and less power to affect things through the usual routes. They were all, not just the ultra-liberals and not just the hippies, in this way children of the 60s they had learned that the old ways were no longer working. This is part of the reason that some families were open to homeschooling at all. They saw that things weren't working the usual way anymore, and so they were more willing to try a new way than they would have been in 1950. Now, there were leaders, um, there were educational leaders encouraging this, a few educational leaders. Of course, at this, time, this is a time of major educational experimentation. I'm not going to go into that, but um, you have a couple of leaders in particular of prominent educators, uh, one conservative and two, uh, one liberal and two conservative, who were sort of leading lights at this time, and that's John Holt, who was a radical unschooler, and Raymond and Dorothy Moore, who were um, Seventh-day Adventist conservatives. And both the Moores and Holt were anti-school. They were not just pro-homeschool, they were anti-school. 
um, Holt coined the word unschooling. We needed to be de-schooled. Schools couldn't be reformed. They needed to be abolished. So you can see how anti-institutional this is. Unfortunately, if someone took up these ideas, it meant not only going against the status quo, but also potentially against the law, especially in California. I want to talk about one Los Angeles family's experience in trying to exert control over their children's education, and that is uh, the 1953 experience of the Turner family. William, who was an aeronautical engineer, and Mary uh, were home educating their eldest three children. They weren't anti-school in particular, but Mary believed that her children had a better chance of a good fundamental education at home. Now, they had already been to court in New York for homeschooling, and New York had ruled in their favor. Other states were also starting to deal with this, and some were coming out in favor and some against, but uh, California, as we were about to see, was not so friendly. Now, the Turners were what we would think of now as pretty mild homeschoolers, um, they had the day divided into periods. They touched on all the subjects. Uh, the kids had desks. Um, so this was very sort of not really ruffle the feathers homeschooling. Uh, but at the very beginning of the trial, Mary Turner is accused of being a communist. Um, so obviously this is something that was very frightening. Uh, the court did rule against them. And on appeal, again, ruled against the Turners. And the Turner children were forced to go to school. Now the Turners had argued that the California Code of Education took away parents' fundamental right to educate just because they went, weren't credentialed teachers. At this time, and until 2008, there were three ways you could fulfill the education code in California. You could go to public school, you could go to private school, or you could have a tutor who was a credentialed teacher. Now, Mary Turner was not credentialed, uh, but she thought that uh, the code took away her right to educate just because she wasn't credentialed because her children were all, all testing very well. But California ruled, citing federal precedent, that the state's right to educate overruled that of the parents. And this is very interesting. It didn't just rule that the Turners could not educate their children at home. And it didn't rule that the Turners couldn't educate their children at home because they weren't credentialed. It ruled explicitly that the state's right to educate overruled that of the parents. And this is a time when, as I've mentioned before, there wasn't even a, rule, a word for homeschooling. Letters to the editor showed that they thought that it was completely crazy and shouldn't be allowed. Um, and this just shows the difference between 30 years ago and now. You know, if we saw a homeschooling family like this, I don't think anyone would bat an eye. Um, the children are not, you know, hanging from trees or anything. Um, so here we have sort of an example of why families had to really stay um, away from the public eye in order to practice their homeschooling because even though they believed that they could homeschool under the law, the law did not. So at this point it was clearly illegal in California. But the children of the 60s were willing to go outside of traditional roots, which they so no longer saw no longer worked, and even outside the law to take care of their families. This meant, as the Turner showed, living in a gray zone, and it was not a comfortable gray zone. Now, homeschoolers believed that what they were doing was legal. Uh, many of them made the argument that their schools should be ex considered private schools, because all you had to do to have a private school in California at the time was file an affidavit with the uh, Department of Education saying that you had a school. There was no regulation or requirement for accreditation or anything like this. And there were a number of schools in California that had four children, you know. Um, but the state 
it, it was unclear in the law and in the code whether this was actually considered a private school or not. Uh, and certainly those tangles with the law that, that occurred suggested that the state did not consider it legal. Uh, in 1985, according to a Phi Beta Kappa poll, 75% of Americans thought that the movement toward homeschooling was a bad thing for the nation. So you can see that they lived in a socially hostile environment also. So in order to homeschool, you had to go under the law and outside of society. Now, if you're living in the gray like this, you might ask the question, how is it possible for the movement to keep growing? And at this time, indeed, theorists did not believe that homeschooling would keep growing at all. They thought that it would peter out. As Carolyn Forte, one homeschooler, remembers, the danger of being noticed meant that it was necessary to live under the radar. Students wore school uniforms if they had to be outside of the house during school hours. Many families went to grocery stores and libraries outside of town, which is no uh, easy matter in Los Angeles. <laughs> you know, you drive to the next town, it takes you 45 minutes um, to go 10 miles. Uh, and avoiding news cameras whenever they were out, of, out and about. Uh, I heard one story of you know, a family at the park and a news camera was there doing human interest stories and they came up to say hello and the children ran. You know, what if somebody sees you on TV? It's one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, because the problem was that things were so unsettled that if anyone mentioned you to the schools, if you had a neighbor you didn't like, or they didn't like you or something, people could get you in trouble. And even if your children were not taken away from you, you were going to have to go through a whole rig and roll. They may be taken away temporarily. It was really a very difficult situation for families. But the problem was that because they had to stay apart from each other, uh, homeschoolers could not support each other. There was no structure no organization, and little interaction within the movement. People didn't know who was homeschooling. Uh, when people made the decision to homeschool at this time, it was usually because they read an article by John Holt in some national magazine. It was one little thing. It wasn't that they you know, happened upon the HSLDA convention um, or they knew that this was an option. It was, it was an unknown, and it was a difficult thing to start up because you didn't even know where to get curricula. Um, so they had to be careful in order to not get into trouble, and they couldn't meet, meet each other. Uh, however, in order to survive, individual homeschoolers uh, came to the conclusion that they had to have some sort of organizational support. This began locally with playgroups and park groups. Uh, one mother told me about uh, finding another family across Los Angeles, and that family knew another family across Los Angeles, and the three of them met in this park and eventually somebody else met, and they kept doing it for a few years until eventually it had grown into something that was more recognizable. Um, but they had to start very, very small with these playgroups and park groups. As these grew, however, and uh, they realized uh, the sort of safety in numbers that was possible, uh, a couple of larger organizations were founded. First, the Christian Home Educators Association of California, which was founded in 1982 and is the largest uh, homeschooling association in California. And in 1983, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which many of you are probably familiar with, uh, the HSLDA, uh, which in 1987 had only 3,500 members, but one-third of them were Californians. Once these groups have been established, it had become somewhat safe for homeschoolers to have a public face. 
But as they became more organized, questions arose as to what homeschooling would look like in the future, because homeschooling was an anti-organizational, anti-institutional movement that depended upon differentiating itself and being away from these ordinary sorts of ways of doing things. So the question for the next, de next decade became what would homeschooling look like in public? In the 1990s, with uh, these part groups uh, already established and the other larger organizations also, it was now somewhat easier to homeschool. Of course, it was not easy, but when homeschoolers began, they joined a community. They didn't strike out on their own. So not everyone had to be of pioneer stock in the way they had had to before. Um, Usually there was some group in their neighborhood or group in their city that they could actually sign up with. There were places to buy curricula so you didn't have to start uh, reinventing the wheel with every family. But what did homeschooling in the public eye look like? While homeschooling was becoming legal and regulated, in many states it still had no clear status in California. So there was a certain amount of danger still involved in homeschooling. As everywhere in California there was a difference between homeschoolers' comfort level the level of public acceptance and the level of legal acceptance of homeschooling. However, on a local level, homeschoolers were beginning to have success reaching out into their own communities and indeed without of their own communities in order to take advantage of wider resources for their children. And this is the point at which I would argue that they became no longer anti-institutional but post-institutional. They were in fact inviting their communities back into their children's education. Academically, they did this uh, first by sharing teaching. Now, sometimes this would be Mrs. Jones teaches the Brown kids math and Mrs. Brown teaches the Jones kids history. But eventually, this turned into homeschooling academies where you could attend and experience all sorts of different classes taught often by mothers and fathers of homeschoolers uh, to the point where you could actually be homeschooled in a classroom at a desk. Um, <laughs> Uh, families also began campaigning to use some public school extracurriculars. And this was done bit by bit, family by family. A family would contact the coach of the football team and ask if the boy could be on the team. Um, this was not usually done even at a district level. So it was very uh, family by family, school by school, teacher by teacher especially. In an even more interesting development, some public school districts began to set up homeschooling programs, which later, uh, many of which became uh, charter schools. This was very controversial. So a family could sign up with the public school system and the child would actually be an enrolled public school child and the, the state would have the funding for that school child, um, but they would do this from home. Um, some families really loved this but others found that it provided too much regulation with too little support. Often the classes were distance learning, later they became online, but uh, they were regulated by a teacher. And um, while supplies were available, for example, you had it, one, one mother told me she had to take her little, her little toothpaste cup and they would put three drops of paint in it and then she could come home um, and use those three drops of paint for the day, uh, which is, is just, not to say this is how it was everywhere, but, but is an example of of how uh, the school would decide what the family needed. School systems were also mixed in their opinions about these programs. Some were still very uncomfortable with anyone having anything to do with education besides credentialed teachers. One local school district superintendent said, quote, I wouldn't want my child educated by someone who wasn't trained, and I would be concerned about the legality of such programs, end quote. 
Uh, so you see again that these public school districts uh, do not see the connection between the parent and the academic education. They believe that there should be someone in between the parent and the academic education. Fourth, homeschoolers began to take advantage of community colleges, often by sending their teenage children there to develop uh, a recognizable transcript for when they would apply to uh, colleges. Now, all of this is very interesting to me, especially because homeschooling had been, as I said, defined by being other, defined by being outside and against uh, these school systems. But now we're finding that homeschoolers are actually inviting these communities back in, whether it's a wider homeschooling community or even the actual public school. And this suggests to me that homeschoolers are, again, allowing that schooling is indeed a public matter, that the state and the community does have some interest in the education of children. But homeschoolers here are still insisting that parents should have both ultimate authority and the bulk of casual authority over schooling. So that even when a child was attending a homeschooling academy, for example, the, children, the parents were intimately involved, sometimes even teaching these courses and in choosing the courses. And everyone knew each other. Uh, so they found a way to see homeschooling as part of the public good as well as the private. And they believe that they should have access to public resources, but they should retain primary control in a way of combining the private and public goods together through this tailor-made post-institutional way of educating beyond categories. Moving on to the early 2000s. Uh, once homeschoolers began to educate in this way, uh, things really took off. And as I mentioned in my numbers earlier, I, I think it uh, went from, from 1 million in 2003 to 2 million in 2010 homeschoolers nationally. So this is really, really becoming something that's accessible to people and acceptable to people. And people don't have to strike out completely on their own. And there are ways of doing it without rejecting the wider community. By 2000, homeschooling was no longer an invisible activity. And yet it was still hard to pin down. And this is where the numbers get a little tricky. Homeschooling is what sociologists call a hidden population. Uh, it's hard either to define and thus count or to access because people are still a little nervous about the legality. They don't want to be counted. And also um, because some homeschoolers were now public school children, it was difficult to define what actually counted as a homeschool. Um, but according to the best estimates we have, uh, the number of homeschoolers has been increasing just exponentially. Um, between 2003, I believe, and 2007, it increased by nearly 50%, and that's in four years. Uh, so in 2010, 2 million or 4% of school-aged Americans were homeschooled. So homeschooling had grown in size, in stability, in visibility, and accessibility. But what about acceptance? Homeschooling was still illegal in California until 2008. The change that came in 2008 was due to a court case called In Re Rachel L. A Los Angeles teenager Rachel had run away from home in 2005. Uh, she lived with abusive parents. It was a really clear-cut case. This family had been uh, in trouble before for abusing children um, in a number of ways. No one really paid much attention to this case because it was such a clear-cut case of abuse. However, in its ruling, a Los Angeles court not only ruled that Rachel should not have to stay with her parents, but that homeschooling was illegal. Homeschoolers were not aware of this case until this ruling. 
Courts often made particular kids go to school, especially because it was a useful way of leaving children with their parents but making sure that someone saw them every day. Um, but this ruling actually said that homeschooling in particular was unconstitutional and specifically that a homeschool did not count as a private school. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, everyone who was homeschooling in America was in California was supposed to stop. Obviously, this called, uh, uh, caused a number of heart attacks and apoplectic reactions. Um, the homeschooling mechanism jumped into action. The Homeschool Legal Defense Association, uh, the other organizations I had mentioned, um, even all of these small academies were all filing amicus curiae briefs and they convinced the parents to appeal, um, which was funny because the parents were clearly abusive parents. Um, but they needed, this case obviously appealed. But what was really interesting is that not only did homeschoolers jump into action, but non-homeschoolers rapidly began to publicly defend homeschooling. The Los Angeles Unified School District filed an amicus curiae brief in support of homeschooling, saying that it believed homeschooling was legal and that it would not change its practices towards homeschoolers, whatever the ruling of the court. This is the public school system. Governor Schwarzenegger of California released a statement. I'm not gonna do his accent, but you can just imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'm bulging. Um, Every California child deserves a quality education and parents should have the right to decide what's best for their children. Parents should not be penalized for acting in the best interests of their children's education. This outrageous ruling must be overturned by the courts and if the courts don't protect parents' rights then, as elected officials, we will. Let's just let this sink in for a moment. I know that Governor Schwarzenegger is a conservative, but in 1953, when Mary Turner was called a communist, no one was like, oh no, she's just a homeschooler, not even the conservatives. I mean, this is, this is an important statement that this governor of the most populous state in the union has said, parents should have the right to decide what is best for their children's education. Homeschooling had moved in the public eye from a situation where homeschoolers were outrageous in 1953 to anyone who would thwart a homeschooler being called outrageous by the governor of the state. On rehearing a few months later, the same court reversed its ruling with a fascinating line of argument. Now the code stood. There was nothing in the code saying that homeschooling was legal. But the court argued that the state legislator had tacitly approved homeschooling, basically saying that, well, everyone sort of thought it was legal, so it must be. They um, noted some other places in California law, such as the health code, where homeschooling was mentioned. Uh, there was a, there's a code saying you can't smoke within a certain number of yards of a school, except a homeschool. So the court argued, if the laws are mentioning homeschools in other places, then the legislature must intend for it to be legal, even though they haven't made any laws about it, which is just a fascinating strain um, of argument. And basically, what they have said is that because Californians have come to believe that homeschooling is legal, it must be. Um, so this is a situation where we have come to a place of acceptance in California of homeschooling as part of a sort of libertarian individualistic strain, where as long as something is not hurting anybody, and of course that's debatable, but um, that it's acceptable. And that the parental right to decide um, especially in this tailor-made post-institutional way, is understandable to most Californians. 
It's not a progressive idea. It's not a conservative idea. It's not a liberal idea. It's a post-institutional idea, an idea that goes not only beyond these buildings and these formal ways of doing things, but goes beyond these categories to come to a certain tenuous social and finally through this bizarre uh, court case, uh, tenuous legal acceptance. Now, I don't want to suggest that it's easy to homeschool or that it's easy to homeschool in California or that everyone supports it, uh, which is why I keep using qualifiers <laughs> on this acceptance. Um, but some have suggested that homeschooling has now reached its peak. So why should we worry anyway? The argument here is that first, the population that is interested in homeschooling has been exhausted and second, that a change in the political wind could smash homeschooling at any time. Uh, the first argument doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I believe that there are, from my, my interviews and other conversations in California, that there are great numbers who would homeschool if they could. The dissatisfaction with uh, public schools in Southern California in particular is fairly widespread, uh, but of course not everyone is able to access uh, any sort of solution to this. Um, you think of uh, single parent families, um, families with dual earners, you know, usually homeschoolers are white and they're in this particular class where they live on one income. So if you get too rich because you've got two incomes, you're not likely to homeschool. If you get too poor so that you have to have two incomes, you're not likely to homeschool. So it's, it's restricted by circumstance, but I don't believe by desire. Uh, the second question is one that uh, takes a little more wrangling. A change in the political wind could certainly harm homeschooling. But homeschooling now, I believe, because of its historical origins, has its own strength in law, uh, in judicial precedent, and yes, in fact, in its own organizations. And because it has gained some social and legal recognition in its new post-institutional form, which is not against the public, but looks for a new combination of private and public good, uh, I believe that it's not considered something that is as hostile um, to the state as it would have been uh, several years ago. However, homeschooling is still subject to the fashions and changes made over time. One example is the uh, Ramaki family, German family you may have heard of, who fled to the United States after being prosecuted for homeschooling in Germany. Uh, they were granted asylum in 2010, but that asylum was overturned in 2013, this year, uh, with the opposite argument. They were first granted asylum because uh, it was said that Germany was violating their religious freedom because their homeschooling was religiously based. But in 2013, the board reviewed this decision and decided that it was not a religious matter. So as you can see, for any particular family, things can still go either way. Yet I would argue that homeschooling is not a lone movement and then is unlikely to just simply disappear even if there were legislative actions against it. This is because, as I've shown, homeschooling today is at its core one solution to a larger frustration with institutions, groups, you might even say the public, among a certain sector of Americans. Homeschooling provides an example of how individual families can refashion their social, religious, and political alliances based on individual needs and beliefs, not on group affiliation so that homeschoolers are able to bind together based on their belief in this parental right rather than on their differences.
In more local cases, they even uh, bind together, and I haven't been able to talk about this because of the shortness of the talk, but based on values rather than on affiliations. So for example, and I'm sure you've all encountered this, you will see uh, Catholics homeschooling in conjunction with Protestants rather than with other Catholics because their values don't agree, um, which is something that no one would have predicted 50 years ago. And this represents a jaded distrust of the public that is paradoxically combined with a deep concern with the public good, as well as individual rights. And homeschooling has shown a way that the public good can be served by private rights, by family rights, if this post-institutional, post-category approach is adopted. We see this in homeschooling, but also in things like uh, pro-life alliances, where you have evangelicals and Mormons working together. We never thought that would happen. Um, and other political alliances, too, green movements, uh, from small food, local food, to global warming issues. Um, smaller things, even like La Leche League, which was a fringe Catholic thing at its, at its beginning, and now doctors refer mothers to La Leche League for their expert advice on breastfeeding. In other words, the former public consensus that we might have had in some degree uh, before the Second World War has fragmented, but may in some places, such as in homeschooling, rearrange into unexpected alliances according to this belief in this ultra-local family influence. I would suggest that these alliances, like homeschooling, will continue to thrive along other efforts, which might be to further nationalize schooling or nationalize other important public matters. This may help to continue to polarize the nation, but it may be along less predictable lines than ever before. It is possible, as homeschooling suggests, that these lines may be shifting. Thank you. Michael? I have a question uh, going back to the Turner uh, case uh, in California. Mm -hmm. In the 50s, when you talked about them going through two courts in California, and the end, end decision was that uh, it was illegal, mm -hmm. and did you say, did they refer to federal court arguments? Federal precedent. Yeah, uh, there were a couple of courses, but the one that, that stuck out most was uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, which I think was 1925, which was about Catholic education. And I'm not actually very familiar with the case, but yeah. Uh, so it was interesting because other state courts were uh, not using federal precedent. So like Illinois, for example, which in the 1950s began to rule in favor of homeschooling, was only looking at state precedent. Um, but California also had uh, Remanaged its code a little bit in the 20s to make it harder to insert things like homeschooling too. So it, it, it was part of the progressive era, as was that case. All right, I, I was that well, a little late. But... The sisters. Is that the Oregon school case that went before the school? I think so. I think so. so. I'd have to which, check. Which did say exactly what Schwarzenegger says later on: the parent is the final arbiter. Not in California. <laughs> they didn't interpret it that way, and the yeah. did not go up the next step up. I think part of the problem was that a lot of, a lot of the um, cases about education, and especially dealing with minors, the, it wasn't in Society of Sisters, but either the cases are de-published, which means they, they explicitly only apply to that certain family, or they're, they're in some way worded that it's difficult to interpret what the length of their power is. 
Um, so that's why something like Turner and, and other cases, um, there was another case in the 60s, Shin uh, from Imperial County, you know, could be overruled by this uh, 2008 decision, which is shockingly late, you know. I have a, an anecdote and a question. In Canada, I think they're not as receptive of, of homeschooling. Um, in Alberta, homeschooling is allowed, or at least this was a decade ago. It was allowed, but um, there was a provincial officer um, who inspected all homeschooling families and could come into their house, according to the law, to see their setup. Well, this inspector was a friend of my wife's, and he himself was an unschooler. <laughs> <laughs> so That's the great. The standards just apply very strictly. Excellent. In Alberta, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, from the public schools' point of view, what's the sort of net effect of, or some of the net effects of homeschooling? I, I think, mm -hmm. on the one hand, you pull out the parents who are most likely to be active contributors to the schools. Um, on the other hand, they're also the ones who are most likely to um, try to hold the school accountable uh, yeah. in ways that maybe they don't want to be held accountable. But mm -hmm. what, what are some of the net effects of homeschooling? Um, I think that homeschooling from the public school system's point of view is, is one of a number of problems drawing away from the public school, including private schools, um, you know, it was very involved in, in voucher battles and charter school battles and things like that. Uh, but I think you're right that homeschooling parents, the children of homeschooling parents who actually are withdrawn from school often have some, they're often either uh, precocious children or children who are not being challenged enough in school or there's, there's some problem like that with the teacher that they're not having enough work or their children who are falling behind. Um, so they are sort of troublesome parents. <laughs> you know, they're, they're parents who are advocating for something for the child. And if the school doesn't bend, then they'll, they'll withdraw. Um, school systems seem to have different approaches. I think that in the 90s, when they began to establish these charter schools and the online um, homeschooling programs and things like that, it was part of an effort um, to recapture, regain that part of, um, you know, the, the public school system. And of course, as I, as I mentioned, you know, a child out of every classroom is a lot, both in terms of, you know, this idea of civically educating the populace and in terms of the funding that schools need in order to, um, conduct that education. So I think there is a lot of, a lot of mixture. There are certainly teachers who um, support homeschooling. People see this as, as an option. It can be a very good option for children with learning disabilities. Um, and sometimes school systems will work with families who have children like that because the parent can give the one-on-one -on -one attention and the school can get some guidance without having to hire the one-on-one -on -one tutor. So I do think it, it really does vary by district, and I think that's part of the reason why different districts, some districts have programs and means for homeschooling, and some do not. Is that? Thank you. Adam? <laughs> First of all, thank you very much. That was thank you. Very presentation. Uh, since I do registration, I might sign up for your class. <laughs> uh, my question is, it, it doesn't, may not be 
so you, you may That's okay. But um, what I was thinking is how much in the early days was homeschooling, sub-homeschooling, a kind of poor man's white flight? In other words, mm -hmm. don't let integrated schools, we can't mm -hmm. afford to move out to the suburbs, so we're going to do mm -hmm. homeschooling. This touches a lot on the issue of private schooling, which I didn't talk about here, but um, you know, the, there's an obvious question when you think about homeschooling. Well, if you don't like the public schools, why aren't you going to private schools, um, for example? And, and I think um, there, there's a book on um, segregation academies, I think, in Missouri, um, that makes this argument that private schools were set up after Brown versus the Board of, Education, uh, Board of Education, basically so that white families could send their children to them instead of keeping them in the now integrated public schools. And I think there was some sense that that might be the case with homeschooling. However, um, it would be very, very difficult to understand whether uh, these things were motivated in that way. I mean, in terms of, of a racial motivation, it would be very difficult to pin that down because, of course, even in these segregation academies, it, no one says that that's the reason. Um, and in terms of other causes of white flight, economic stuff, uh, that was certainly came to play. You know, a lot of parents, um, the, the biggest reason for homeschooling is religious, for religious reasons. You know, and the, the way they do these surveys, you know, you can mark more than one thing. And so it'll say, you know, 70% religious reason, but 60% will be safety. You know, people are worried about the physical safety and they're worried about drug culture and, you know, hookup culture and those things. So, yeah. I was just wondering to me if there are so many clear trend lines like after 54, in No, and I mean, the, 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 it's almost impossible to count homeschoolers until about 2000. But um, the best counts we have, we're not talking about more than a few, you know, 20,000 families until 1980. So, and they're so hard to trace because they don't want to be seen, you know? Um, and, and, and many of them were fringe in a lot of other ways too, so. Even though you say it's hard to count, by the time they reach a critical mass, they start to kind of tell their own history, right? Mm -hmm. so I have never heard a homeschooler say something to me about a court case uh, other than Rachel L., um, which I usually brought up. <laughs> but they do mention things like no child left behind. Um, they mention school consolidation, you know, the lack of neighborhood schools. So they do mention sort of big movements in educational history. Um, but. Uh, the homeschoolers I've talked to sort of about their, their historical view of homeschooling are, are more interested in developing a historical basis for their movement in setting up linkages between them and the founding fathers and, and things like that, for example. And then they're interested in what's going on right now. And of course, they have, um, they're very well informed about what's going on politically right now in terms of education. So, but no, they've never, I, I don't know if they're even aware of these cases. This Pasadena stuff that's going on, uh, were you 
you saying that the people you've interviewed suggest that it is uh, was religiously motivated? A large percentage of the early ones in the fifties. Did they? Did that come out? Um. I think in the 1950s and in the 60s, the reasons were as different as the families. It was so scattered. It was so scattered. And there were so few. Um, it's very hard to get a hold on. And a lot of the information we have about that period are, is um, impressions and anecdotes given by people like John Holt, who were public leaders who weren't going to get in trouble because they weren't actually homeschooling anybody. Um, but. I don't know. I, I think that even when we're talking about religious motivation at that time, I mean, you were starting to have things happen with school prayer and evolution and things like that, which are the things that people mention now when they're talking about their religious education. But um, I think that it was more concerns about sex ed and concerns about um, communism, you know, uh, than so, so there was that sort of like secularization concern, but they, they didn't have these these pinpoint issues. I mean, there was a lot of worry about sex ed. There, there really was, which had been around for decades, but was sort of changing, you know, and the consensus that was being taught was changing. And uh, even in, in private schools and in, in Christian schools and Catholic schools in the late 1960s, you start to see um, teaching about contraception, teaching about homosexuality and things like that. And so uh, for Catholics, it was part of that post-Vatican II backlash that happened among a certain sector of Catholics. So, yeah. were, were, were schools and national educators starting to define their function differently, or was there not a big change um, from, say, World War II and pre-World War II? And I'm thinking in terms of um, whether they were defining their role more as socializing, as forming values, than maybe would have been done before. Hmm. Was, was that a change going on or, or not? I have no idea. I think that began, uh, that began with progressive educators in the late 19th century with John Dewey and, and folks like that who were talking about, um, they're talking about everything from like experiential learning and hands-on learning to um, civic formation and social formation. So you start hearing like school is about socialization. You start hearing that, but I, I do think that um, governments jumped on that bagwagon to a different degree once the Cold War started because they started taking uh, this socialization as, you know, a major part of what the result would be of this war. I, I think the government just really sort of plunged its hand in and started to um, have higher level influences in a way that it hadn't before because because of a strengthening idea maybe of, of the, the civic aspect of education, that the state had this really important role to play in protecting the nation by educating its students a certain way. So that went hand in hand with that idea that, that the parents might get in the way more than sort of being the people who send the children to school. So then you see sort of a lack of, of appreciation for the value of a community school uh, instead wanting to have a social formation of an integrated community, you know, a certain kind of uh, economic community too, so. And so then, it's crucial, the point you mentioned before of, of the uh, decreased confidence in institutions that came about in the 60s mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that has to be 
Yeah, I, th I think I, I really do think so. And, and of course, it's uh, this is just a little thing I'm talking about homeschooling. But I think that that uh, that decrease of confidence in, in institutions and in some way in in the public as being trustworthy is something that is pretty widely spread. And I think is is behind a lot of our our um, political debates now, or, or at least is, is part of it. And I don't think it's something that's really well recognized. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.